0: This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. This is BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome to Matt's Blaine. I'm Matt Armitage, and I'm flying solo this week. Which means that for once, Richard Bradbury can't tell me what to do. He has made me promise not to get him in trouble, so I'm going to try to keep the stories clean. And because you only have the sound of my voice to help you through the next half an hour, I thought we might as well try and make the stories fun as well. Of course, what could be more fun than talking about Elon Musk? In case you missed it, Elon Musk now owns Twitter. What's that? You don't use Twitter? Yeah, neither do I, so I guess we'll never know if he spent that 40-odd billion dollars wisely. Let's move on from Elon Musk to uh, friendly bacteria. We've covered a lot of stories on the show about the brains in our bellies, or more accurately, the role that gut flora plays in everything from obesity to depression. (laughs) Now, I think we actually covered this story at an earlier stage. Scientists at Rouen University Hospital in France have found evidence that oral doses of a probiotic uh, based on a bacterium called HLVI, the oral doses helped obese mice to lose weight. Now, the mechanism they do this via is a molecule produced by the probiotic that's called CLP-8, and this mimics an appetite-reducing hormone. Now, of course, trials like this often fail at that first stage because what is successful in one animal is often not successful in another. But happily, in initial human trials, the researchers have found that the probiotic does have a similar effect in people. Their study comprised 212 obese individuals. Uh, the individuals were then given counselling support, which would help them reduce their calorie intake by Twenty percent for the next three months. Uh, they were asked to maintain other aspects of their life, so their usual exercise and physical activity regimen, so that the data wouldn't be skewed by things like doing more intensive workouts or just sort of changing drastically the the way you go about your daily life. About half the group took a pill containing the HLVI twice a day, with the remainder taking a placebo. Now, over three months, 55% of the group that took the probiotic lost more than 3% of their body weight, compared to only around 41% in the control group. So there's about a 15% difference there. Now, this is the point where Richard would jump in and say something like, well, 3% doesn't sound like much. And that's true. I know it doesn't sound like much, but we all know how hard it is to lose even a couple of kilos. And that's what that 3% represents for most of us, you know, two to three kilos. I've lost maybe six kilograms this year, but the first three kilos of that was down to contracting COVID in March. Now, I managed to not put the weight back on, but it's taken me six months to lose a further three kilos. So losing two to three kilos over three months really is a big deal. And it turns out that that 3% is something of a magic number. Now, according to New scientists, which of course is where this story comes from, just losing 3% that links to a di- that has a direct link rather to a reduction in the risk of developing conditions like type 2 diabetes as well as cardiovascular disease and these facts were also reflected in the study the candidates who took the probiotic demonstrated considerably lower blood sugar levels than the candidates in the control group. Now, one thing that the research didn't check was food intake. So they don't know uh, if there's a link to certain foods. For example, if some foods are better than others, uh, it could even be, you know, that the the sense of being full, that sense of being satiated, uh, that uh, that people on the probiotic uh, pill regimen reported feeling that could have caused them to eat less or snack less. There's also the possibility that the bacterium actually affects how fat breaks down. So we may not be too sure about the why in terms of why this works, but we do have a better idea of what results we should expect to see. And the hope is that this and other bacteria can one day become part of very personalised and targeted approaches to tackling obesity. It's really strange not having anyone to ask which story I should do next. Um, Okay, I have to admit I've been getting a little bored with my Apple Watch recently. Now, there's nothing wrong with it. It's not that I need a watch to do anything that this doesn't do, uh, which is basically, you know, the way I use it, it's to tell the time to announce my WhatsApp notifications and to time me when I'm on the treadmill. And I think a lot of us have probably had a similar long-term experience when it comes to smart watches. We think we're going to run loads of apps. We think we're going to do all of these things with it, but basically it boils down to time, notifications, stopwatch. Uh, I admit I do occasionally use it to answer calls when I'm uh, when I've misplaced my phone, but only when I'm home alone and indulging my James Bond and Armand Flint fantasies and talking into my wrist and uh, holding it up to my ear. But that doesn't stop me getting excited about the research that's uh, been carried out at Uppsala University in Sweden, where a team has developed a quantum watch. And just like everything that has the word quantum in front of it, it does its job in completely the kind of opposite way than the one you'd expect because this is a watch that doesn't count. And I know that sounds really strange, but we'll get to why and how in a second. So the Swedish team developed it uh, because they needed a more accurate solution to measure these things called pulse probe experiment. Now, these are very common in material science. New Scientist uses the example of solar panels. In this kind of experiment, a laser is pumped into a cloud of atoms, increasing their energy levels. You see, I'm talking about dangerous lasers again today, and Richard isn't even here to see it. Then a less powerful pulse, the probe, is fired to measure the effects of the pump. But researchers have trouble measuring the time that can elapse between the pulse and the probe. I'm guessing it has something to do with density, I guess. You can tweet me to tell me I'm, I'm wrong, though, as it's a tweet. I'll probably never see it. The Quantum Watch solves that problem. Not the uh, the Twitter one, but the pump probe one. The quantum watch works with lasers again. A laser is fired into a cloud of helium atoms, which puts the atoms into a superposition of quantum states. Uh, this is where the atoms have multiple energy levels at once. Now, without going into the really mind-bending bit of this, uh, basically these energy levels interact with one another. And this creates an interference pattern that changes over time. And every time it does, the results are unique. So there are no repeated patterns. Now, I know you're saying, how does this make it a clock? Because you conduct the pulse probe experiment and then you read the interference pattern to discover how long it took. Because as I said, no two patterns will be the same. So it's not like a stopwatch where you start the clock and then you click it to end. This is one of the aspects that has made very accurate clocks so complex to manufacture because you're creating a situation where you're calculating the passing of ever more minute units of time. Now, despite the fact that it hurts uh, your head just thinking about it, The quantum clock is actually much simpler than these complex clocks, you know, atomic clocks, all of this kind of thing, because there's no stop or go. There's simply a pattern to analyze, which shows you how many nanoseconds or whatever unit of time you're using, uh, however many nanoseconds has actually passed. Now, of course, the fact that it consists of lasers firing into clouds of helium atoms means it's unlikely to replace my Apple Watch anytime soon, but I do love to dream. And of course, it's pretty much useless as a clock anyway. It tells you how much time has passed rather than telling you what time it is. But it could be used in many more areas of science where calculating time with this kind of accuracy is very important. A uh, new scientist mentions quantum interactions between light and matter, or even measuring the decay of a molecule. I know it won't fit on my wrist, but that doesn't stop me from wanting one. Let's stay in the quantum realm for this next story. We all know what accelerometers are. They're in our phones, our smartwatches, all sorts of mobile devices. Accelerometers measure changes in position. Now, this can be as simple as counting the number of steps you take or the new full detection features a lot of phones and smartwatches claim to be able to do. They tell uh, drones, for example, what's up and what's down, and they're not necessarily even something new. We've had quantum accelerators for a while. But up until now, most of them, despite existing in multiple spaces at once, could only move in one dimension. So they were great for traveling in a a straight line very accurately. You could measure anything along that plane very accurately, but they weren't a lot of use beyond that. A group of researchers at France's National Centre for Scientific Research have built an accelerometer that operates in three dimensions. And yes, just like in the last story, it uses lasers. So the device is housed in a metal box that's 40 centimeters long. Inside it, there are three lasers and a smaller glass box. This box contains rubidium atoms, which are stored at just above absolute zero, which is one of my favorite temperatures. And it's the cold within that box that creates the conditions for the quantum effect to take place. Now, of course, the three lasers measure the three dimensions, uh, length, width and height. As the box moves, the atoms in the smaller glass box collide and the lasers pick up these movements allowing them to calculate the acceleration. Uh, In tests that were run uh, against uh, a standard non-quantum accelerometer, the quantum device was found to be far more accurate. Over a period of a a day, the positioning of that standard non-quantum device would drift by almost a kilometre from its actual location. By contrast, the quantum device remained accurate to a level of about 40 meters. So why do we need quantum accelerometers when devices like our phones already have GPS? Well, one possible use is as a backup device in uh, sectors like shipping. Uh, GPS is incredibly accurate, but only when you can connect to that satellite. And as we've talked about on recent shows, there's been far more conversation really about the idea of societal resilience. Uh, For example, in the event that there was an outage in GPS networks, uh, it doesn't matter whether it's through natural or deliberate actions, quantum accelerometers would allow ships to stay on course without having to resort to manual calculations with maps, charts, or with something like a sextant. Uh, There are also industrial applications uh, like in mining because the device can calculate minute changes in gravitational acceleration. So that's pretty cool. Um, I think that's uh, probably about it for part one. When we come back, we'll be looking through some smart glass, training some AI and talking about smartphones that are actually interesting. This is BFM 89.9. Birkins for Mama. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome back. You're listening to Matt's Plane on BFM 89.9. I'm captain of the ship today, hence the nautical theme of our last story. Uh, Richard Bradbury will be back next week once he's made it out of Jigsaw's escape room. Now, part two of the show is traditionally reserved for AI. And on a show devoted to the future, who am I to break with tradition? Uh, So one of the tropes uh, when we talk about autonomous cars uh, is the problem getting AIs to break those tasks down into uh, individual steps and to get them to think through those steps. Now, you might think that the logical approach that we go through would be a natural one for machines, but it's just as hard for us to break down every discrete stage in a process, uh, which is why it's so hard to explain the meaning of a stop sign to an AI-powered car, because we don't necessarily understand the individual steps that go to make up that decision. You can put a stop point on a map, or you can... uh, give some other indication to the car, like via GPS, which it will happily follow. But as far as seeing and following that road sign that says stop goes, that's been a much harder process. Which is, of course, where I say until now. So this is another new scientist derived story. Back in May, researchers from Cornell University presented a paper suggesting that artificial intelligence could make more logical decisions if taught to think step by step. Uh, Now, a collaboration between Stanford and Google research is putting those concepts to the test. The team isolated 23 tasks that AI has traditionally struggled to compete with humans at. Uh, These tasks included sorting words into alphabetical order or forecasting uh, uh, where you end up after following a series of navigational instructions. And I have to admit, I struggle with quite a few of those tasks as well, Uh, whether that's just cognitive dissonance or just proof that I guess i am an ai only time is going to tell us now the stanford team used three ai models for the experiments Uh, they were asked to repeat the same tasks with and without prompting. Uh, I'm assuming that they reset the models in between tasks so that any learnings from previous attempts were lost. But according to the results, when prompted, the machine's performance improved by between 25 and 32%. How does that translate into human trumping tasks? well without the uh, the prompting the machine's bested humans between 4 to 6 times out of 23 so depending on the machine with chain of thought prompting added to their sequence that rose to between 10 and 17 of the tasks interestingly in a handful of the tasks including detecting sarcasm The unprompted machines actually performed better than the prompted ones. So it would be interesting to find out whether this was due more to uh, operator error, Uh, you know, that same issue with breaking down the reasons we stop. Perhaps we lack the ability to fully articulate why something is sarcastic. So a machine that just guesses uh, based on a, a data set of sarcastic comments is actually more accurate in predicting them. But this is a breakthrough in training neural networks, uh, one that is critical as we see the spread of natural language processing engines like GPT-3, something we've covered many times on the show, reminding us that it's not simply about giving machines access to data sets and letting them run free to create their own conclusions. It's actually about presenting that data in the correct sequence so that the machines can draw their own logical conclusions and not simply decide that the best conversations are, you know, ones about Nazis based on the traction and interaction they received. It does play into the current thinking about human machine assistive teams in workplaces where the humans do the work they're best at and the machines do their thing, which Helps to improve the performance of both. Hopefully, we will also see it create situations where, you know, as in the case of self-driving cars, it's safer for autonomous machines to operate in environments where they interact with these meat bags that created them. Now, moving on to the the next story, one of the coolest things about the recent Tesla MindFest, or whatever it was called was the fact that Elon Musk announced uh, that the Tesla robot Optimus should cost less than $20,000 when it hits the market next year-ish. Now, I know that sounds like a lot of money, but it's still relatively cheap compared to a lot of humanoid or indeed any kind of uh, robot, certain the ones that are commercially available. Uh, one of the things we mentioned last week about space travel was the ability of uh, commercial space companies to drive down costs. Humanoid robots and robots in general have typically been very expensive because of the complex engineering required to get them to move. When you give a machine legs and arms and ask it to complete tasks, uh, to to walk but use its arms for a secondary purpose, for example, it has to be aware of its balance and its physiology or its architecture or whatever you want to call it. It's not the same as an industrial machine that's bolted in place or, you know, some remote controlled drone operating on wheels. And this is part of the reason that machines like those made by Boston Dynamics are actually so expensive. It's uh, required in many cases, hand coding uh, the robots and individually training their movements. Neither of which is ideal when you want to mass produce them at a commercial scale. Researchers at Carnegie Mellon University may have found a a solution to at least those cost issues. They've created a robot dog that costs a fraction of the prices that Boston Dynamics uh, charges or that Tesla envisages charging. Uh, It cost them, I think, a little over $6,000 to put together, this robot dog, and that could pave the way for truly affordable robots in the future. Now, their solution was to train the dog using artificial intelligence. Uh, admittedly, the uh, the four-legged friend uh, that they've created is no beauty. Its uh, canine-like body is fine, but they've added a rotating arm uh, attached to its back that allows it to pick up objects, so it lends it uh, a certain kind of uh, Frankenstein air. Uh, but in terms of its brain, the way the first model was trained was typical to the sector so the machine was first operated by joystick by a human operator to give the ai its parameters the machine learning then used reinforcement learning to allow it to develop uh, so it would use trial and error essentially and of course they let this happen in both simulated environments and then with an actual robot this allowed the 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 network to develop task-specific actions and behaviours. So it would go from simple instructions about how to flex its arms, to developing mechanisms to pick up cups and, for example, toss them into a bin, or wipe down a a whiteboard with an eraser. But the really clever bit came when the researchers flipped the AI it had trained uh, from the role of student to being the teacher. The machine was then able to pass on its learnings to a new machine, with the student machine trying to replicate the movements of the teacher and apply them to the real world data being fed into it by its own cameras and sensors. Uh, So far, it seems that the trials are developing well. Uh, If this can develop into a a commercial scale model, it could mean the difference between a world full of thousands of assistive robots to a world full of millions of them, uh, which means Skynet and the world of John Connor are maybe only a click away. Now. Yes, that's it, smart glass. Uh, We've talked about smart glasses plenty of times on the show. We've also talked about material science type smart glass, you know, formulations that are self cleaning, for example, or electrically charged glass that you can dim or, you know, change the opacity or the color with current. Even forms of glass screens that use refraction to camouflage the object that's placed behind them. Uh, We've also talked about different systems for moving data around buildings. Now, one method was to use our electric lights as a a data transmission source. Uh, The lights would pulse, kind of like a code, you know, on off to transmit data packets. One of the drawbacks of this method was that while the frequency of the flicker is high enough that it's not detectable For most people, for extremely light-sensitive people or those with some vision issues, the flickering would be visible and uh, would be highly irritating, uh, even nauseating. Uh, I'm one of those people uh, who can actually see uh, a lot of modern lighting and display screens flicker. So this is a story I found on Design Taxi. A research team in Saudi Arabia has created a smart glass coating that acts like a Wi-Fi router, and it can even be powered with the same solar energy that is passing through the window. The technology uses light polarisation, so there's no distracting or headache-inducing flickering. According to Design Taxi, the smart glass is infused with dual-cell liquid crystal shutters, These alter the polarity of the light passing through them, uh, which turns the light effectively into a signaling mechanism to transmit information, which is what allows it to replace a traditional Wi-Fi network. The glass has a modulator in the glass panel and a receiver box that the information is transmitted to. Another great feature is that the system is very low energy, so a simple solar panel in the glass can actually feed all its power needs. The idea is still at the concept stage at the moment. Uh, The job now is to build a prototype and then to scale the amount of information it can actually transmit. Uh, I think it's currently estimated to be around um, 16 kilobits per second at the moment, and obviously they want to push that into mega and then gigabits per second. I think that brings us pretty much to a close for today. So I did mention that there would be um, uh, some interesting stories about smartphones. So I'll just mention those in uh, in brief. The first is an item from The Verge. Uh, one of the new versions of the Redmi Note 12 that's going on sale in China very shortly will ship with a battery that can be charged in just nine minutes. Uh, Apparently the Note 12 uh, is a mid-range phone. So this is one of those examples of great new tech coming to affordable devices. Usually, you know, we find they come to the flagships and it's a couple of years before that technology kind of trickles down to the mass of consumers. Now, the second story is news of a new Xiaomi concept phone that uh, uses interchangeable Leica lenses. While the idea isn't exactly new, I think Motorola has been doing something along those lines for a few years with its modular range of devices, this could take your photography game to a new level. So typically with uh, a a dslr a a big camera with interchangeable lenses you unscrew the lens and you expose the sensor and the mirror that housed inside the camera body and you replace with whatever lens you're putting on next obviously that's not practical for a wafer thin phone that you generally keep in your pocket so the one inch camera sensor on the phone is actually covered with a layer of glass And that enables you to use it as a normal phone to carry it around in your pocket when it doesn't have a bulky lens attached. As uh, Engadget points out, it's unclear how that glass layer will affect the picture or whether it could potentially pick up, you know, scratches and dirt through daily use. But it does indicate... That convergence that some of the Android powered hybrid camera devices, uh, Samsung had a whole range of them, I think a few years ago, it indicates where we were going with that kind of technology. Now, whether you'll be able to afford the extremely steep prices that Leica typically charges for uh, its lenses is, of course, another matter entirely. That's it for today. Uh, check out Culture Pop's raggedly updated Substack for more information about these shows. Uh, that's culturepop.substack.com. Uh, you'll find links to the stories and occasionally my deranged rantings or you can just go over to culturepop.com for much the same but without the rantings or you can listen to Matt's Blaine and other BFM shows wherever you find your podcasts or download the BFM app which is available from the Google and Apple App Stores. Thanks for tuning in. This is BFM 89.9, The Business Station. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.